This is To The Right House, a new podcast series by the Global Campus of Human Rights. From skepticism to hope, from utopia to empathy, we discuss human rights, riding waves, but also signalling where the light is. This podcast was recorded in Venice, Italy, on the island of Lido, at the Global Campus headquarters. Today is the opening debate in a newly launched podcast series organized by the Global Campus of Human Rights on engaging with human rights skepticism. In the course of the coming weeks, we will explore different expressions of skepticism. Some are academic in nature and target the concept and underlying philosophical premises of human rights. Other skeptics are concerned more with the practical application of human rights. A characteristic expression of skepticism views human rights as expressions of Western values that are instrumentalized by powerful states to assert geopolitical influence in the post-colonial, post-Cold War era. However, profound concerns about the value base associated with human rights are also widespread in the global north. Some expressions of skepticism are articulated from a right-wing political standpoint and may be associated with illiberal trends. However, there are is also a long-standing skepticism about human rights in left-wing political circles. These are all issues that will be further explored in future podcasts. Our aim today is to chart the territory, as it were, explore what is at stake. We will begin with an examination of the simple question, why engage? What might human rights advocates gain by seeking to establish a dialogue with critics and exponents of divergent views? When is this strategically opportune, and when might it be more appropriate to adopt a principled and uncompromising stand, for example, by naming and shaming human rights detractors? To explore these questions, we're joined today by two eminent human rights experts who, however, come at the issues from rather different perspectives. One is an experienced practitioner, the other an academic scholar. Lotte Leicht has until recently served as director of the Human Rights Watch office in Brussels, and has decades of experience with human rights advocacy on the ground and in multilateral diplomatic fora. Guy Cher is Professor Emeritus of Université Libre de Bruxelles. He's a prominent legal scholar and public intellectual who continuously has devoted academic attention to emerging challenges to human rights and democracy. I'm George Ulrich, Academic Director of the Global Campus of Human Rights. Let's begin with you, Lade. In what ways have challenges posed by human rights skeptics impacted your advocacy work, and how have you addressed them? Please be as concrete as possible. In, in, in many different ways, and I would say very often not in good faith ways in, in, in terms of voicing or skepticism about the international framework of human rights, international human rights law, but also its application. I think the good faith arguments have come primarily from uh, survivors uh, of gross abuses, both communities, individuals, as well as witnesses, in that uh, what is there in terms of international human rights law, be it civil and political rights or economic, social and cultural rights, is not enough to address the abuses they suffer or the concerns that they have. Uh, in the same uh, or in, in the same vein of, of addressing uh, critiques 
I faced a lot of partisan criticism, and that means particularly when I've been part of documenting uh, abuses in conflict areas, but also in then advocating justice for abuses. Uh, one side would argue immediately against uh, the research, the facts, uh, the legitimacy, if you will, of, of the abuses documented if they're committed by one side. And when you document uh, abuses by that other side, you would get the same kind of negative feedback. So that I actually often have taken as a compliment because I, I very often felt, well, that means I do something right. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, I've been part of trying to establish balances of abuses, but just uh, facts-based uh, research and, and subsequent um, advocacy. I would also say that there has been a lot of the whataboutism, uh, meaning why do you particularly uh, uh, document or advocate uh, for solutions in this particular situation? Why not this one? And most often that's just uh, a mechanism to divert discussion and not to focus on this issue. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't be or the people I work with wouldn't be involved also in many other situations. Uh, but very often that has been used uh, as, as criticism. And then uh, finally, I would say that particularly in international forums, we have seen very partisan um, positions, particularly by governments, when it's uh, friends or allies of theirs who are committing uh, atrocities or abuses of, of international human rights law in not wanting to address that. And that I have seen uh, by, by both democracies and autocracies, sort of this uh, protection effort to protect friends and allies and that means that uh, human rights law is important, but it's only important when it's uh, foes that are violating it. So it's sort of a, a wide range of, of um, interventions, pro and against. But I would just say that as a, as a real basis, my, my core experience has been that it is incredibly important to have an objective set of international standards that doesn't change with a political uh, whims or, or governments changing, but actually this ob objective set of standards that we can rely on, that we can base facts on, and that the uh, courageous survivors, uh, communities and affected uh, people can, can trust and, and move ahead on the basis of. Great. Thanks so much, Lotte, for uh, kicking us off in, in, in with, with such um, strong um, observations. I, I, I take, uh, you, I mean, you are immediately putting on the table a distinction between good faith contestation and, and bad faith objections to the human rights agenda, and I think this is something we should really keep in mind and probe deeper. I also hear you um, at least implicitly raising the question of potential double standards and how human rights issues are being addressed and pursued, and whether that's something that might compromise uh, work being done in the, in, the, in the field. Now, before we go forward with these particular issues, Guy, I would like to invite you too to um, maybe elaborate a little bit. How have issues of human rights skepticism arisen in, in, in your uh, work over, over many years? Well, thank you. I could uh, begin with uh, an experience I had in uh, Beijing. Actually, I came first there with the EUC in uh, 
2013 uh, with Florence Benoit Romer, and uh, we gave some conferences on human rights uh, in Beijing. And then I came again in uh, 2015, uh, and I taught, I had to taught, that was the program, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, 48th Declaration of Human Rights, uh, at UIBE, which is a university in the north of Beijing. And it is important because I could see a certain change in the way uh, human rights uh, are dealt with in China, but it's more general. Uh, in China, uh, when I gave the course, it was in, 1950, in 2015, in the beginning of uh, uh, Xi Jinping rule, so things were decided before, I think, because uh, I don't think these kinds of courses could exist today. And that's my point. Um, nobody would uh, criticize human rights as such. So I gave uh, a list of human rights, the list that is in the declaration. And uh, when I spoke of a foreign country, whatever problem, even the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, which is very difficult to deal with our students in Europe. It was okay, you know, the Chinese don't care and they discuss it as they would discuss about uh, Waterloo and, and, and other problems uh, in a very um, distanced and objective way. Now, whenever I would speak of China, of Hong Kong or uh, <clears throat> Tibet <clears throat> or Xinjiang and Uyghur and so on and so forth, I had always students who came forward with texts that were not translated into English, so I couldn't check it, uh, and saying that, uh, well, China uh, respects uh, perfectly uh, human rights. Uh, there is a propaganda against China, but you know, if you had read these texts, uh, you would uh, understand that China perfectly respects human rights. So that was, of course, something I couldn't, I couldn't control because I, I, I don't read Chinese. And anyway, it's, it's a matter of manipulated uh, facts, manipulating facts, uh, and not uh, criticizing the value of human rights. They said, okay, human rights is good. We respect human rights and you're wrong when you think and when you say that we don't respect them. Then you have the present situation. The present situation is very different. I don't know whether or not you have heard uh, Xi Jinping speaking at the opening of the Winter Olympic Games in Beijing. And he said, uh, you know, China and, and maybe Russia, because he was with Putin, are uh, uh, more um, evaluated, uh, developed that, than the, the Western countries. We have superior values. We have different and superior values. And so that's the problem uh, of uh, Asian values, Islamic values, uh, all these uh, ideas that human rights are a Western concept and that other countries and other regimes cannot be uh, judged and assessed and appreciated um, in the name of a notion that is a Western notion and that is not universal. And so you have, for instance, if we speak of the Asian values, the idea of uh, harmony versus individualism, the idea of authority, Confucius, uh, all these elements that uh, show uh, another view of the values. And that, of course, is a direct attack on human rights. 
uh, I don't know whether or not it is in good faith. I think it is, it is, it is massively a certain manipulation of concepts. And my point, just to begin and then I'm finished for the moment, uh, my point is that uh, the perspective of these other values, Asian values, African values, authenticity, Mabutu said, uh, uh, Islamic values, uh, Russian Orthodox values, etc. Um, it uh, it uh, depends on the interlocutors we have. If we you speak with people who have the power, they will defend these values because it is a way for them uh, not to be criticized in the name of human rights. But if you speak with people at the basis of society, of course, it's very difficult to hear these voices because there is sort of a screen, which is a power between us and them. Then you would uh, hear people, maybe they don't, they, they wouldn't speak of human rights in a, in a sophisticated language like a political philosophy and so on. But they would say that they don't want to be, uh, to be attacked uh, and uh, to be ruled by an arbitrary leader and that they want to have a job, uh, not to be dependent of, uh, on, on, on the power and that they want the police not to be, to, to, to be arbitrary in, in the arrests uh, and the judges to be independent and elections to be fair and so on and so forth. And so you would listen to people who would defend human rights, even if they don't really understand the notion. And I think that is a discrepancy. And uh, so uh, what I want to insist on is this, for the moment, is just this difference between we accept human rights, but uh, don't criticize us because we have the facts and we respect human rights, or we have different values and don't criticize us because your values are not a criterion we accept. So, so thanks, Guy. Um, even if you approach the issues from a, a, a different angle and perspective, I in many ways hear you sort of coming at, at uh, the, towards the same point, which is really, as I hear you at least, um, saying that many of the, the criticisms and skeptical objections to human rights that are um, being, being voiced in the international political arena have an element at least of bad faith in them, that they're protecting ulterior motives in some sense or another. They're protecting power, they're protecting uh, privileged interests and so on. Um, at least that seems to be a, a clear theme. And uh, I'd just like to challenge or push that a little bit. You know, are, are, you, um, uh, are you sure there isn't an element of, of, let's say, alienation from people, for example, if you take the Asian values debate, uh, people on the ground feeling to some degree a certain sense of uh, affinity and loyalty with, um, with uh, existing um, uh, value systems that, that may at least be perceived to have some element of, uh, of conflict with uh, individualistic international human rights. And is there an element of justification in governments um, claims that they're prioritizing collective interest, for example, growing the economy, reducing poverty, whatever it might be, um, as a priority that somehow takes precedence to, the, um, to compliance with the international human rights agenda. Are, are these totally uh, bogus claims or, uh, or, or, or how, do we, um, how do we respond? I wouldn't say they are totally bogus claims, and um, I think uh, that there is part of a justified uh, 
resentment, uh, especially in China, uh, in the way uh, China was treated by the Europeans. And uh, generally speaking, there is a lot of resentment uh, about the West and some of these criticism, uh, some criticism addressed to Western policies uh, are, some, are completely justified, some of them. The problem is attacking uh, a certain domination or cultural domination, economic domination, geopolitical domination by the West by attacking human rights, uh, which, is, which is a very, very uh, important, important problem because you mentioned the, the certain value of the community and uh, uh, which, is, which is emphasized by uh, not only the Chinese, but uh, uh, other in other parts of the, more, the, the world, the notion of more solidarity. But actually, I think that uh, if I look at these countries, the majority, they criticize the West as being individualist and oppose individualism to certain values of social harmony, hierarchy, uh, peace, uh, uh, solidarity, uh, and not the brutality of the, of the market. But actually, uh, the, I think there is a confusion between two forms of uh, individualism. Um, the, the majority of the, the countries in the world have accepted capitalism, and even a capitalism that is less regulated than in the West, uh, Western uh, uh, state, uh, social, social states. But uh, at the same time, uh, they are very authoritarian uh, and that's the mix of authoritarianism and capitalism that is that is so 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 present today, problematic with a, a very complex. Uh, but I think that the criticize the criti the criticism of human rights is a criticism of uh, what I would call the uh, ethical universal uh, individualism, which means each individual has certain rights and it has nothing to do, it's not the same as possessive individualism which is related to capitalism. And I think that these countries uh, who, it's an, an hypothesis, but these countries uh, which uh, defend the community solidarity, harmony against uh, individualism, uh, accept the, I would say the bad individualism, you know, possessive individualism, egoism, and so on, uh, uh, the, the, the neoliberalism and primacy, total primacy of the market, uh, but at the same time, they don't accept the basic value of human rights, which is to defend vulnerability the, of the individual. And I think there is a confusion. I don't know whether, whether I'm, 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 I made myself understood. I think, I think very clear, Guy, and very interesting point, in fact. But I, I'll immediately hand over to you, Lada, to hear, to hear your reaction both to the question and to, uh, to the response that we've just heard. Well, I think very often uh, when we talk about human rights, uh, there, there is this perception that everybody uh, thinks about their rights uh, all the time and defines both uh, their, their existence, but also uh, how they go about life uh, on that basis. I don't think that is true for those who actually enjoy their rights. And sometimes that is also an enjoyment that means being lifted out of poverty, having access to school, having access to clean water, and, and, and so on and so forth, and far more in the civil and political rights uh, framework rather than, or, or in the economic and social rights framework rather than the civil and political rights framework. I think the issue uh, individually, uh, 
comes home once you become uh, a victim of wrong or your, your family is wrong or something happens that uh, you are unable to address when your, the school where uh, your child went every day suddenly collapses, people die because of government corruption in the building uh, regulations. And you don't have access, one, to speak about this wrong, access to redress, to ensure that those who are responsible for this will never do it again and will be held accountable in an independent court of law. Once all of that comes home, you define suddenly your rights in a different way. And when they are violated and you can't speak, you're being silenced, your neighbors are being silenced, your child needs medical assistance that is now depending on, on your silence. Uh, you cannot be sure that this will not happen again. Your community is affected by the crime. Then you, you, you live these uh, rights violations suddenly uh, in a different way. And that's where that takes over. So I think we, we need to also understand that human rights actually are lived by individuals, not only in, 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 in uh, benefiting from, from, from those rights, but particularly when they're challenged and the challenges are, are, are impossible simply because of violations. And that's where values and rights are, are sort of uh, uh, coming against each other. And, and this is part of the work that I have done for many, many years where we actually see that that's where people suddenly, they know rights from wrongs. They don't necessarily know whether it's in that uh, convention or whether it's uh, laid down in these and these laws, that's not important. They, they usually know wrongs when, when they happen. And, and do you feel that, um, so again, to be a little bit the devil's advocate, you know, I, maybe let me start from a, a, a slightly different viewpoint. You know, I've been working for decades as human rights educator and, and we, have, um, uh, we happen to have a monastery, uh, which is the, the seat of the Global Campus of Human Rights. We have 90 very, very enthusiastic and dedicated and talented students here every year. And, and we have 60 or 70 professors who come to teach here. And, and my feeling is the professors generally tend to be very much uh, invested in and, uh, and supportive of the, the human rights agenda. So are the students. And I have a slight concern, you know, that we become a bit of an echo chamber, that we are all uh, affirming the same message and, uh, and, and being even in the monastery, there's a slightly, I don't want to say cultish feel to it, but it's, it's at least, I feel there's really a need sometimes to, uh, to open up our eyes and ears to what's being said outside of, of, uh, of these premises and to maybe also assume that there is an element of good faith and there might be something to be learned. It's not to justify wrongs, as you're talking about, Lotte, is not to talk to justify uh, uh, political uh, manipulation and abuse, but it's, it's simply to say, might there be elements of, uh, and, and, uh, of, of insights that, that we could take on board that also come from the, from the side of the critics? And listening to you, for example, Guy, making a conceptual distinction between a possessive individualism and an ethical universal individualism, I think is very interesting. You know, and, and I'm wondering, 
is there a discussion here? And, and for example, the way the, the uh, African Charter on Human and People's Rights really tries to uh, emphasize the importance of the community explicitly as a counterpart to uh, a concept of, uh, of universal individual rights. Is there something there that we also in, in the European context could take on board and, and, um, and, and learn from? Well, I think that's an interesting point you made. When uh, it's the same I have uh, in Bruges at the College of Europe, everything, everyone is in favor of Europe. And, and in a certain way, at a certain point, uh, we don't take into account some arguments by Eurosceptics and uh, sovereignists and whatever, uh, because some of these arguments might be valid, uh, and uh, we are not there. We are not a church, a secular church, like you know. We want to promote Europe. It's not our job. Our job is to uh, to create a certain capacity of critical thin thinking in 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 the. Uh, the head of, of our students. Now, it's pretty much the same about human rights. Of course, uh, everybody who comes to the monastery and, and is in favor of human rights. Uh, but uh, that's important. It is important because uh, if you have a notion, you, everybody agrees about the notion, uh, it, uh, it becomes at a certain point, that's, that's an argument by John Stuart Mill in, in the 19th century, uh, it, it becomes something ossified you know, you need these kinds of criticism. And you're right, uh, in the first part of my, of my speech, uh, I emphasized something which is present, uh, which, is, which is the bad faith and the manipulation. And uh, I, we couldn't use that in order just, just to discredit all these, all these criticisms and not taking into account some, 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 some elements that, that are valid. And in particular, you mentioned the idea of uh, solidarity or the community. Actually, this is important. You, you, I noticed that uh, the notion of uh, first generation rights, uh, civil and political liberties and civil and political rights, it's, it's more difficult to accept uh, in, in, in the world by leaders, because the, some of these leaders or many of these leaders don't respect civil and political right, which means, well, uh, especially that uh, if you are not elected, you, you must leave the power and so on and so forth, and you must respect some right or power is not absolute and so on. Whereas when you speak of social rights or access to water or even environmental rights, this is something that doesn't involve a criticism of an illiberal government, because it, it's a matter of efficiency. You, you give work to people, uh, you, you have the possibility of have, having a, a clean air and something like that. It's not like civil liberties, uh, the power can be criticized by freedom of expression and uh, free elections and so on and so forth. So maybe we should deal with these accents made to, uh, on the community, which is a good thing, but at, at the same time, we should be very cautious because it could, could be a, a way of privileging uh, social, cultural rights, etc., etc., and not respecting uh, the, the basis of human rights, uh, first-generation human rights. So it's, it's an excuse sometimes, but there are some, some good elements in the criticism of the market and neoliberalism and, and the idea of communities. Uh, so... That's yeah. what I would say. Thanks, Guy. I think quite quite clear. Again, Lada, maybe let's hear let's hear you on the on the same point. 
I absolutely agree. Uh, and I think it is important that when we talk about human rights, when we educate about human rights, and when we document violations, that we pay due attention both to civil and political rights, as well as economic, social, and cultural rights. And we don't draw a distinction in saying one set of rights are more important than the other, because it really depends on life circumstances, what matters most to you. I, I do think, however, it is important in these discussions also to recognize, and I think, Guy, you said this at the very beginning, much of this debate about human rights not being relevant or being sort of a concept that was invented by one part of the world over another part of the world, these are the bad faith arguments that I, I simply don't buy. And I think they serve one thing, and that is to legitimize abuses and to facilitate power holders to stay in power without checks and balances uh, included. But I, I think it is important in, in this, in, in, in this uh, uh, discussion to distinguish between that and criticism of the implementation and the application of rights. And that's where criticism, I think, is legitimate, it's important, and that's where we really need to engage. Because rights need to be lived, they need to be implemented, they need to be taken seriously by those who have to deliver on those rights and those who live their rights. And that is really the core criticism that I see from people and communities around the world that I have worked with. It is, well, my rights are not taken seriously. And very concretely, this is where double standards come in. We now have in Europe a concept where a number of countries simply have taken an a la carte uh, approach to rights and said, well, when it comes to migration and the right to seek asylum, guess what, you know, no, that's not so much of a right. That's something that is political negotiable for us. And we can just outsource those rights and we can pay someone else to do uh, both protection work and to hear the rights of people who seek asylum. This is a disgusting and outrageous sort of uh, proliferation, I would say, in privileged countries saying, well, we can just pick and choose too what we believe is important. These are issues that need to be addressed. And at the same time, we also see uh, new issues. And, and Guy, I think you addressed this as well in, in, in really good ways. There are new issues evolving where we need rights to develop further and particularly where we need to have maybe also more of a common solidarity framework to, to, to address those concerns. Global health, I mean, has become a real issue through the pandemic. And we have not seen the solidarity that was needed to have equal access to vaccines, even those, those, those vaccines could be produced. The TRIPS waivers at the, the World Trade Organization have been blocked by the EU and key EU countries, which is outrageous and had denied many, many people around the world access to the, med, uh, to the vaccines and to the treatments that are being developed. I think we are seeing uh, an, an emergence of, of an urgency to address climate change and rights surrounding climate change uh, that are applicable to communities that are not responsible for climate change. This is again where global, not just solidarity, but responsibility and accountability need to, to come in. So I think there are new challenges. I, I, I want to defend what we have achieved in terms of human rights law, but I want to also recognize that it can never be static, that it needs to be further developed 
to address new problems, emerging problems, and problems that affect more people around the world than ever before, including global health and climate change. So these are new issues, and that is where I think we should focus the discussion rather than having a discussion about chipping off certain rights that are now laid down in law through exceptionally hard work for the past many, many years, because those are sort of more based on political whims and power struggles Whereas what we really need is to focus on developing that framework further and not leaving it to political negotiations and, uh, and thoughts about who should be protected or not, but really having it laid down in law so that it's applicable, uh, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, and that uh, rich countries will start paying their dues and their responsibilities to global problems such as global health and, and climate change. So thank, thanks again, uh, Lada, and, and I, I didn't want to interrupt you because it was just so articulate and, and clear, the, the message you were, you were presenting, and I think in many ways what I hear you do at least is you shift from a conceptual and, and, and normative discussion about human rights to a, what, we, what I'm also going to call uh, questions concerning the, the practical application, or the, the, which sometimes are, are questions that are being raised of a more pragmatic nature. And I think that's, that's very interesting, and those will be themes that we'll try to further pursue also in, in subsequent podcasts. Maybe uh, to, uh, to con in, uh, for the final little bit of our discussion, I'd like to put on the table um, what I often think of as political expressions of human rights skepticism, and, and they come from two different uh, points of view. Um, one talks about how human rights at times, at least are being invoked in a way by unelected and unaccountable experts to interfere with the legitimate uh, exercise of, uh, of uh, parliamentary governance, you know, so that, uh, and parliaments very often feel that whether it's the international experts or courts or, or uh, organizations, that they bring up human rights in a way that isn't uh, opportune or, or convenient in the local context, and, uh, and they feel there is an, an overreach uh, that, is, that is not politically legitimate. From the other side, and so we get in, in many European countries even, you know, you get strong criticisms of the European Court of Human Rights and, and saying we want to opt out of the, the Council of Europe or the European Convention and, and so on and so forth. From the other side, you have, um, you have uh, left-wing um, um, politicians who will, who will say the human rights framework is simply ineffective in changing global inequality. It's based on a notion of formal, of equal treatment, of, of, uh, of formal equality, but it does not generate substantive uh, equality. It doesn't really seriously um, challenge or, or affect the, um, the neoliberalistic economic world order. In fact, they coexist quite harmoniously, and in some ways it becomes even a kind of smokescreen or, or instrument to, to perpetuate uh, um, global power structures. Do you, do you see any value in either of those two um, expressions of skepticism, and what do we take away from that? Again, I, I, I have problems with, with, with those kind of arguments. I mean, the first one, uh, I... I I do think that we all need to recognize that part of democracies, part of living human rights means also that you put your finger in the wound when, when wrongs are being committed or when policies are 
in your view, wrong. And uh, that can be inconvenient. It can be a, a pain to politicians saying, well, we're trying to achieve this. And here you come with your facts and you, you, you sort of want to interrupt the discussion. Well, that's just life, you know, and, and that's, in my view, how it should be. And that's exactly the checks and balances, including independent courts actually saying, well, hold on a minute. When you, when you make these political decisions, you're actually violating your own laws or the international laws to which you, you are, are now obliged. But, but the this, argument this is the that the argument is that the experts are, are not just expressing a contrary opinion. They're telling the politicians what they can and cannot do. Yeah, which is which is true, you know, and, and this is where I would say, OK, and if politicians then say, well, we choose to ignore that and, uh, and and actually in that process, then violate their own laws and standards to which they're committed, they can be held accountable for those actions. I believe that's important. These are the checks and balances that we have that also in politics, not everything is negotiable. There are certain bases based on which you make political decisions and uh, uh, for the purpose of delivering to your people and, and, and observing uh, your role in the world. I would say to the other argument that what we have is, is simply not sufficient in addressing uh, huge problems uh, of inequality and, and poverty. I don't disagree with that, but I don't think that it's because the, what we have is wrong. I think it is because we need more and we need particularly those who are particularly responsible for perpetuating inequality. Uh, uh, we, need, we need standards that would limit their uh, ability to continue to, to do so. And these are urgent issues and they are issues that are also uh, part and parcel of what I mentioned before vis-a-vis -vis climate change and global health. I mean, those who are most responsible are actually not stepping up and, and doing what they need. And of course, now we have uh, taxation uh, rules that do not, uh, that, that, that actually do not, are not equipped to deal with the new world where we have big multinational companies that don't pay taxes anywhere simply because the rules are not up to par with developments of how these companies operate. That kind of lack of solidarity is in my view, uh, inexcusable and unacceptable. And that needs to be addressed, but not just through politics, through new laws that will actually make that happen. Thank you, Lotte. Guy, maybe you'd weigh in on the same debate? Yes, I would answer the two questions. The first question about the overreach by experts, international organizations, judges also, uh, and uh, some sovereignists saying that uh, they are deprived of the possibility of uh, expressing the popular will uh, because uh, these international experts or judges uh, say, say sometimes the contrary. It is an argument that was developed very recently and it's a very important by Poland. 
When Poland, uh, you know that uh, there are a lot of procedures and Poland was uh, uh, condemned by the uh, European Court of Justice. Uh, the, 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 the commission doesn't, doesn't give Poland the money uh, Poland is entitled to because Poland doesn't respect uh, the rule of law. And uh, you can see that since uh, 2015 when they came to power, when the, 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 the party uh, of uh, Kaczynski came to power, you know, they, they destroyed, pretty much destroyed the independence of the judiciary. And that's something fundamental. And when they were condemned by the uh, Luxembourg, they said all these experts and judges say something that is against our constitution, our constitution disappear, etc., etc. But you know, it's not preserving the identity of a country like preserving some values, uh, being against, uh, for instance, gay marriage, which is the case in, in, in Hungary. Uh, and in Hungary, they even have the possibility of changing the constitution because they have a, two, two, uh, a special majority. But you know, the rule of law must be a common value because without rule of law, you don't have fair elections and you cannot see what the will of the people is. Because uh, if you have uh, not the rule of law, well, you know, you can you can uh, eliminate uh, opponents like they did in Nicaragua. You know, they, you arrest them or you you ex expel them. Uh, and during the election process, you know, there is a lot of fraud, real fraud, not like Trump would say uh, in the United States. <clears throat> and so, if you don't have independent uh, instances and judges being able to organize all that, elections without human rights don't mean anything. And so um, I think that the argument, all these experts telling us that we must respect human rights, uh, that we, the rule of law as a part of human rights, I think it's a bogus argument uh, because without the rule of law and the independence of a judiciary, you cannot have human rights and fair elections. The second thing I would say about the left, you know, today you, you have the, the, the woke movement, for instance. You know, they, they begin with very, very important problems. The woke, you must be awake uh, because there are discriminations uh, you, you haven't seen before. And as you said, uh, you haven't dealt with. Uh, so you have the Me Too movement, uh, you have Black Lives Matter, you have the movements in the university, and you have uh, the cancel culture, and so on and so forth. I, I agree that there are real problems there that maybe were not uh, and surely were not dealt with before. The problem is that it must not be done at the cost of classical human rights, uh, presumption of innocence, uh, freedom of expression. Uh, you can destroy reputations on, on the, the internet in, in, in two or three clicks. Uh, and if you don't have that possibility of people uh, being able to defend themselves because, because some, sometimes uh, the accusation might not be sustainable, uh, then, then it will go overboard. So I would say let's deepen human rights by looking at new problems, but not at the cost of freedom of expression or presumption of innocence. Let me just say that I, I absolutely agree with this. And, and I think this is exactly why it's so important to understand some of these attacks, not or not to give in to attacks by undermining what we have. But if there are needs 
for uh, further developments than to engage on that basis. Also, I would just add to what he was just saying. It is important also to recognize that human rights is not just by majority. I mean, majorities can't rule over minorities and in that way undermine their rights. And that is particularly important. I mean, also as we are seeing in, in the Polish debate now, how uh, suddenly, and that's not a majority minority decision, but how suddenly some of these violations particularly affect LGBTI people, but also indeed women and women's uh, control over their own bodies. I mean, these are issues. This is where the borderline is. I mean, even if you would have a political majority that will say, well, from now on, we will start to make these decisions on behalf of women, whether they should have access to abortion or not. We will make decisions uh, about whether LGBTI people will have access to, to jobs and to express themselves and be who they are without discrimination, that's where it, it, it ends. I mean, majorities cannot make decisions and say, well, we will just violate the, the rights of minorities because we are in majority. This is exactly where human rights are so important. It's also to protect you against uh, uh, minority uh, politics and decisions that will simply say, well, because we are more than you, we have a right to to violate your rights. I would like to, um, I could listen to both of you for much longer. I must say, I, I feel it's it's very interesting. And I, I have to say, the, the premise of engaging with human rights skepticism is completely um, fulfilled. But it's a very critical engagement from both of you. It's a, you're, you're adopting a, a very critical view of many of the skeptical arguments that are out there from different points of view. And I think this is, a, this is an interesting starting point for us. We will continue to probe some of the same questions with, with other um, uh, discussants in the, in the coming weeks. But I think you've really set the stage in a very challenging and, and, and interesting way. And I hear you both strongly defending the... Uh, the hard-won human rights architecture under international and regional law. I would just uh, end my remarks by saying it's also important that we we do not get bogged down in simply defending what we have. That's important. But we need also to spend time on developing the human rights framework and the implementation mechanisms, accountability mechanisms further. And I think part of this process of keeping us on the continuous just defense is is also a way of saying, well, that will stop us from from thinking further ahead and actually develop the the framework further. We need to make a, a conscious decision in saying we will do both. We we all agree, I think, Um, yeah. I would like to uh, to thank both of you warmly. It is a great pleasure to to have you um, uh, involved in this uh, initiative and, um, and and meeting both of you again. And to those of you listening to the podcast, I once again welcome you warmly to the Global Campus um, podcast series and uh, look forward to in welcoming you in the coming weeks as well. Mm-hmm.